with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we will look forward to completing our study of verses 12 and 13 this mor- or 11 and 12 this morning, the main charge of the man of God. Could I invite you to please stand with me one more time, and let's read this text together. I've got the wrong text up on the screen. So, 6, 13 through 16, that's my text this morning. I knew that. So, would you join with me as I read 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, again, as we come to this text this morning, we fall short of the ability to communicate it as it deserves, and even to hear and receive it and understand it as it deserves. Because, Father, this text displays You in Your transcendent glory, Your holiness your immortality, your sovereign power. We pray, Father, that You would open our minds, our feeble human minds, to grasp the glorious truths that You have prepared for those who love You. We pray that You would give us hearts that are growing in anticipation of Your return, growing in desire and longing to see You face to face and to to fellowship with You as we have never fellowshiped with You before. We pray that You would cause the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of Your glory and grace. We pray that You would do this for Your glory and for our good and for our eternal joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This morning, again, like I said, we come back to this text. We started it last Sunday. And I'll remind you uh, what we talked about last week, just briefly. The main command of this text is found in verses 13 and 14. It's kind of split up into two pieces which becomes the center of our text, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you to keep the commandment. That's the main idea of this text. And we looked at that, and at first glance, it would appear that that sort of command is a bit vague. I charge you to keep the commandment. What commandment are we talking about? What what is Paul referring to here? And as we looked at this last week, we, we, we noticed, first of all, that this command that Paul gives to Timothy is a charge. You remember what that word means? All through the letter of Timothy, Paul uses this word charge, and it refers to an order, a, a message being transmitted from one person to another as if down from uh, a general through the ranks of military to the soldiers as they are dispatched to do what they're called to do. That's a charge. And so in this text, in this passage, the authority that is present in this text is the authority of Christ. And it's transmitted through the Apostle. And it's given to Timothy and then also to us. This command is a charge. And we also notice that This command is a summary. It's a summary of everything that Timothy has been told by Paul up to this point. And there's two basic 
categories of things that Paul has told Timothy to keep. One, keep sound doctrine. Guard the Gospel. Keep the Christian faith. Don't let anything reorient that in your mind. He passed it on from Christ and gave it to Timothy to give to the Ephesian church. Keep Christian doctrine and also life, Christian living. If we believe the Gospel as the apostles gave it, it will affect everything about our lives. You can't believe truly and receive Gospel truth, the truths of Jesus Christ, and not have it affect how you live. You cannot be a true Christian and not have a transformed life. Remember what um, the Apostle Paul calls the church here in chapter 3. He says, you are the church of the living God. If, If God Himself indwells you, will you not be changed? If you are the household of God, if God is your Father through the new birth, will not the family image be born in your life? And so, this is what Paul is calling Timothy to. Keep a close watch on your life. It's like what he said in 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on your life, on yourself, and on the teaching. Christian doctrine, Christian living, faith, practice, belief, behavior, the gospel, and its, and its ethical implications for life. That's what is summarized in saying, keep the commandment. That's what Paul's been talking to Timothy about this whole letter. Keep the commandment. Contend for the faith. And let that faith be worked out in how you live as the people of God. He says to keep the commandment. Just a note on that word. It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that calls us to attend carefully to something. To guard it. And so Paul punctuates this central command, I charge you to keep the commandment, he punctuates it with two qualifiers. Keep it unstained and then free from reproach. And those two words together, very similar words, they're, they're, they're synonyms and they kind of uh, have a balanced uh, effect on the command where it says, keep it unstained. In other words, don't transgress anything in the commandment. Don't violate the the doctrines of the gospel. Keep them just as they are. Keep it free from reproach. Don't neglect anything in this command. Those two words combined and they say, keep it without violation or omission. John Stott said it this way, obey your order without fault or failure. And you remember we talked about this, that the rest of the context of these verses, the rest of the content here is then glorious truths to help us to do just that. Keep the commandment. And Paul unloads glorious truths to help us to do that. To empower us, to motivate us, to spur us on, to stir us up, to excite us. This section of Scripture is meant to sober us. At the same time, thrill us as we anticipate the coming of Christ. And it's all by the grace of God. Remember, we've also said too that this is written to Timothy, right? The letter bears his name. It's to Timothy. But it's written for church leaders primarily. And then by way of implication, because as Paul says, church leadership is to be an example to the membership, it's written for every believer in the body of Christ. And so the main idea of this text, we've summarized in this way, by the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, keep the commandment. Keep the commandment. And Paul gives us two reasons in this text to help us to know how we can keep the commandment. We can remain faithful to keep the commandment by, first of all, an awareness of the divine presence. We looked at this last week. Notice, I charge you, in the presence of God first and Him who gives life to all things and then of Christ Jesus. So that was number one we talked about last week. By an awareness of the divine presence as we seek to keep the command, be aware of the presence of our life-giving God. None of these words are accidental, right? They're all Spirit-inspired. And so Paul reminds us, keep this commandment in the presence of God who gives life to all things. God is the source and sustainer of all life, both 
physical and spiritual life. And since this is absolutely true, we are, to, we are not to live for ourselves then and our own earthly desires, but to have a creaturely and secondly, a Christian responsibility to live according to His will and for His glory, which includes guarding good doctrine and then carefully attending to godly living. If God gives us our lives, being the source of life, we owe all to Him as our Creator. And, and I think secondly, another aspect of that could be helpful to us is since God is the giver of life, we can trust our life-giving God as we seek to keep the commandment, even when it becomes extremely difficult. And even in, you think of Paul's case and Timothy's case, even when it becomes life-threatening. Think about that. Dear brothers and sisters, will you continue to hold the gospel and walk in godliness even when it threatens your life. That's what Paul and Timothy had to live with. Will we? God may ordain that for us in our lifetime, but will we respond as Paul and Timothy did? And so, I think this is another aspect of Paul showing us that it is the one who gives life to all things in whose presence we live. Because even when life is threatened, even when physical well-being is threatened, we know that He is able to strengthen us and sustain us for every task and every day He has planned for us. As believers in Christ, as people created in His image, we're not going to die one day sooner than He has planned for us to. He is the giver of life. We must remember remain fixed on the reality that our life-giving God is our primary audience as we keep the commandment and His reigning over us and sustaining us. But then, again, by way of review, Paul draws attention to Jesus Christ being our audience, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Well, what's, what's Paul getting at there? If you remember, Christ Jesus testified to the truth about His identity Pilate said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And what did, Pilate, or what did Jesus say? You have said, well, I am. And my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus made a good confession of his identity, and because of that confession, he then went to the cross, didn't he? And he went willingly and died as our substitute. And so this Jesus Christ is now our constant audience as we strive to keep the faith and he is our merciful and faithful high priest. I love this about Jesus, that's that He walked the road before us. He gave the good confession before us. And He gives us, our righteous, he gives us His righteousness to continue to keep the good confession. And when we struggle to keep it, He advocates for us when we fall short. He helps us when we are weak. He intercedes for us, enabling us to be faithful to the end. Dear ones, you know this. If it were not for this risen and ascended interceding Christ, we would all fall away from God. But because He ever lives, He is able to save us to the uttermost. He is able to sustain us even as we make the good confession after Him. And so we must remember God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord are continually present with us and our primary audience as we seek to keep the commandments. So we guard the gospel with this in mind and attend to godliness. Paul's two main commandments in this letter. Keep the faith and walk in godliness. By the power of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, let us keep the commandment. How are we to remain faithful to keep the commandment? Let's look at the second reason this morning. This is new material now. Number two, you can follow along in your outline. By an anticipation of Christ's appearing. The rest of this passage is consumed with the anticipation of Christ's appearing. To keep the commandment unstained, verse 14, and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. How fixed 
is your mind on the appearing of Christ. You know, that is, that is a fundamental doctrine of being a Christian, isn't it? That Christ is coming again. The apostles were consumed with that anticipation. They had lived with Christ on earth three years. They had heard His voice. They had seen His face. They had eaten the food that He multiplied for them like, like we read. They, they watched Him calm the storms. They touched Him like, like the Apostle John talks about whom, Him who was from the beginning, whom we have seen with our eyes. Our hands have handled the Word of life. And so they lived to be reunited with Him. Right? Could you imagine such joy and anticipation? And that's what's written into the New Testament is this anticipation of the second coming of Christ. He's coming back. Do you believe that He's coming back? You think about it. The Old Testament anticipated His first coming, right? Prophecy after prophecy. I mean, from the beginning of Genesis, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. She will bruise your head. You will bruise His heel. There's the first anticipation of the Messiah. He's coming. And so many more since then. Now, did He come the first time? He did. So do you think He will come the second time? Make no mistake. He will. And so this is what Paul points Timothy to as he seeks to keep the commandment. You keep the commandment until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I struggled to find the right words to summarize what was going on here in verses 14, 15, and 16, but I'll say it this way. First of all, as we anticipate Christ's coming, letter A, you can see in your outline, anticipate the finality of Christ appearing. We're to keep the commandment, notice, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a finality to that expression, isn't there? The coming of Christ is, in a sense, the finish line of the marathon of the Christian life. You keep the commandment until He comes. We don't give up or let up before then unless He chooses to bring us to Himself through physical death. We keep the faith. We keep pursuing godliness by His grace until He appears. The appearing of Christ is His second coming. Think of it that way. What is the second coming? It's Christ's appearing. You don't see Him now, but you will. You will see Him as He is. When He comes to earth for a second time, He's not going to come as a humble slave to die on a cross as He did the first time, but He will come as a conquering King unveiled in His full display of power and glory. The appearing of Christ is the total unveiling of the God-man, revealing Him to be the One whom God has exalted above all. What was the name that He was given? The Lord Jesus Christ. The name above every name. That every knee would bow to Him. We don't know when the appearing of Christ is going to be, right? We don't know when. And so the, the New Testament fills us with a sense of constant anticipation because there's a word we use, the, the coming of Christ is imminent. What does that mean? Any moment. Knowing that the appearing of Christ is coming and knowing that His appearing is imminent, that works in the hearts of believers for our good, doesn't it? It's meant to. It's meant to have an effect on our lives. That's a gospel truth that He's coming imminently and that affects then how we live. We know that when our Savior appears, He will bring with Him Relief and reward, and that may happen at any moment. This knowledge makes us hopeful and holds us accountable at the same time as we keep the commandment. When Christ is revealed, He will grant relief and graciously give reward for our labors done in Him and for Him. Notice some texts about Christ's revealing, bringing relief to us. Would you turn with me? to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Remember when we walked through these two letters together, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians? 
You know, you never really know what's in a letter until you study it well. And I'll never forget studying 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and finding such a grand and glorious description of the coming of Christ here. Look at, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice verse 7 for now. We'll come back to it later. Verse 7. Paul here is writing about the coming of Christ and he says that he will come to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. He will come and when He comes, He will grant relief to you who are afflicted. Walking as a follower of Christ will bring affliction. That's what Paul told us, right? Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Your affliction as a believer will come from one or two of two directions or both. It'll either come from unseen worlds like Job or Paul who were afflicted by a messenger of the evil one, right? Scripture tells us that. Or it'll come from the world because the world hates Christ and so Christ isn't here to be mistreated and so they direct the hostility that they would intend toward Christ to believers. And sometimes we wonder as we live under the weight of those afflictions, we say, how long? When will this, when will this let up? Have you ever asked yourself that? When will this let up? And this gives us the answer, dear ones. Don't expect relief. I, I've had to remind myself of this text so many times. Because I want relief now, don't you? But relief will not come until when? The coming of Christ. He will bring an end to the conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Then will be relief. God will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And the Lord, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Or Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. You're, you're very aware of verse 27. Maybe 28 isn't so clear in your mind. It says, and just as it is, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear. A second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. That's what's coming at the second coming of Christ. So press on, dear ones. Keep the commandment. Hold fast to the truth of the gospel, no matter what it costs you in this life. Keep pursuing godliness with all of your heart, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And by God's grace, don't let up until He comes and grants you relief. But also, Christ's revealing will bring reward. Turn with, it, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. This is an amazing truth and one that we just don't know nearly enough about. 1 Corinthians 3. Dear ones, please keep in your mind that when Christ returns and He judges the world, there's two different judgments that the Scripture talks about. And sometimes believers get these confused and so they anticipate the second coming of Christ with great dread because they think that when Christ returns, that even for Christians, your sins will be rehearsed and you will somehow have to pay for sins that you have done. The question to you this morning is, is that true? Absolutely not. I don't want to see your hands, but just think about it. How many of you were taught that? that a screen, I, remember, I remember being taught that when I was very young. Not, not by this lovely lady over here, but someone else. The screen comes down. Your life, the screen, the screen terminology was even spoken to me comes down, your life will be reviewed, and the things that you didn't ask forgiveness for or didn't get right, they're going to be rehearsed. And you will have to be judged in some way. Dear ones, that is not true. That's not what the coming of Christ brings to the child of God. There's two judgments that you see in the book of Revelation, for example. The one is called a great white throne judgment. That's not for believers. 
That's for those who have refused Christ. And Jesus Christ will take his voice and he will bring everyone back from the dead. The sea will give up the dead. The, the, the land will give up their dead. And, and, and everyone will stand before him and give an account. Those who have refused him and then they will be judged in reality for their sin. But there's an entirely different judgment for believers that Paul writes about. It's not the great white throne judgment. It's, we call it the Bema seat of Christ. It's where our lives will be valued will be evaluated for reward. And why is that? Think about this. Why will a believer in Christ, why will the children of God never have to taste judgment for their sin on any way? Why? Because the judgment for their sin has already been completed. Where? At the cross. Think about it this way. Does a just judge punish sin twice? No. And if your sin, past, present, and future, by the grace of God, has already been judged completely in the body of Christ on the cross, will your sin be brought again to be judged on some other level when Christ returns? No. The infinite Son of God bore your sin in His body on the cross if you are His, even the sins you have not yet committed. Because God is omniscient and eternal. He knows all sins And in that knowledge and in that eternity, He takes all of your sin and He places it on His Son on the cross. All the guilt, all the punishment. That's why Jesus said at His final words, what did He say? Three words, what? It is finished. What does that mean? The debt has been paid. It's complete. Well, then will God bring back some sin that is unpaid for on the cross? Impossible. That's why it says in 1 John 1, He is faithful. And just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. You see, this is how the gospel works. And so don't let the evil one confuse you and make you think that when Christ returns, somehow your sin will be rehearsed and you will have to be judged in some way. Christ already did that. This return is, again, another amazing level of God's grace because even in our feebleness and our failure, in Christ... We will have some measure of reward for our keeping the faith and walking in godliness. Watch 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. Notice them with me. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than what, what that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Here's the idea. God's knowledge is like fire that tests the nature of our work as believers. And in His testing, He will reveal the nature of the work that we have done for Him. And some work as believers that we have done for Him has been done out of selfishness and in God's sovereignty that will not yield eternal reward to the glory of Christ. But there's no judgment spoken of in here. There's no judgment for sin. There's a revealing of the works done for him. Some that will remain. Some that take on the nature of gold and silver and precious stones. Others that will be gone and yield no reward for the glory of Christ. But salvation is still there. Notice, he will be himself saved. So don't think that your sin will be rehearsed and then punishment will be given. No, your works will be evaluated and there will either be the presence of reward or the lack of reward for the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says something very similar referring to himself. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. And stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. 
but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. You see that again, it's talking about reward, commendation, not punishment, commendation or lack thereof. So it's either the presence or reward or the lack thereof, it's commendation or the lack thereof, but not punishment for sin. Let's, let me show you one more text that talks about this, this judgment. And again, these texts could be gone into with great detail, but we're not focusing on those texts today. We're looking at 1 Timothy 6. Go to 2 Timothy 5. I want to show you this text because there's some words at the end of this text that you need to be careful to understand the definitions of. Very careful about this. Verse chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, Paul says, if our bodies are destroyed, we, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before, here it is, the judgment seat of Christ. That's different than the great, great white throne judgment spoken of in Revelation 20. This is the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Now be careful with this. We look at those words, good and evil, and we, we think morally good and sinful. But if you look at the very definitions of those words in the original language, it's talking about what is valuable or worthless. The same idea that we see in 1 Corinthians 3, whether our works done for Christ are like gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. So somehow, in Christ as believers, what we do for Him, holding the faith, walking in godliness, sharing the gospel, whatever it is, being godly husbands, wives, parents, children, so on, in Christ, what we do for Him, labor for Him, will receive some reward or lack thereof when we see Christ face to face. I want you to think about this as I say it again. On that day, Christ will not hold us accountable for our sin, and we will not receive punishment for sin. That's already done in Christ on the cross. Rather, Christ will evaluate and reward our labor of love for Him as we keep the commandment. Christ will, and this is what's amazing, is that Christ will reward us for our labors, even though they're feeble and flawed. We must never think, as we anticipate the coming of Christ, that Christ is going to reward me because my, my, my labors are so great. I think the only reason that we are rewarded for any of our labors is because we're in Christ. Because they're done for Him in Him, and ultimately because they're covered in His perfect righteousness. And so... That righteousness, His righteousness covering our lives, covering our works by faith, that's what gives us joy as we anticipate this final coming. Anticipation of the finality of Christ's appearing and God's strengthening, is, is God's strengthening grace to us. It enables us to persevere in the faith and godliness as we eagerly wait for relief and reward with the return and revealing of Christ. And so the Christian goal there by God's grace is to maintain an awareness of that finality of Christ's appearing. 
Reward is coming. Relief is coming when Christ is revealed. Now, the second part of this text. Letter B, anticipate the sovereignty of Christ's appearing. Look what it says. Verse 15, which He will display the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, that's referring to the appearing, right? Which He will display. Now, who's He? He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's hard sometimes to tell who is who in this text. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper proper time, He who is the only blessed sovereign. As I describe this whole section, let me say it this way, anticipate the sovereignty of Christ's appearing. Not only does the appearing of Christ bring a finality for the believer, a final relief and reward, but the appearing of Christ will come with great sovereignty. The appearing of Christ will completely make all things new. Let's focus on this for a while. God will reorder all things, dear ones. And all things He will fill with His perfect righteousness. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3. If you could turn there with me. I'm going to read verses 10 through 13. Second Peter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord, right, same idea, will come, the coming and appearing of Christ, the final second coming, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's a dramatic reordering of all things, is it not? The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works done and will be exposed. A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen, do not think for one moment that the appearing of Christ will fail to bring about all that God promises to accomplish through the appearing of His Son. From the smallest microbe To the most magnificent star, God will accomplish all the details of His will in Christ. Your efforts, your faithful efforts in Christ as a believer to keep the commandment will not be wasted or go unrewarded or fail to bring God glory. Every letter of God's will will be done. Every promise fulfilled. The world's relentless efforts to suppress the truth and destroy the church will not go unpunished. The evil, deceitful, and hostile works of the evil one, Satan, and his armies will not be forgotten and left unrecompensed. Make no mistake about this. The church will be relieved and rewarded, just as we read. The world and the evil one will be judged and punished. This is the clear word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in it all. It seems like when one military head moves in to accomplish something that 
there's always a surprise. There's always a a re-rallying, a a change of plans, because it doesn't work out the way one person might plan. It's not going to be that way with God. Everything that He intends at the coming of His Son, the appearing of His Son, will be accomplished. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're welcome to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. Listen, listen to this. Then comes the end when He, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign, Christ must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet, but when He says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. Everything that God decrees to happen in the great consummation at the appearing of Christ will happen. And you will rejoice with joy unspeakable that you were in Christ and kept the commandment by His enabling power. Turn back to 2 Thessalonians 1. Let me just read a fuller section of this text. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. Please follow along with me in these words. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5 says, This is evidence, the endurance of believers in all their persecutions. That's that's the context of verse 4. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All that God has promised will happen. Do you see this text? It's a vivid display of Christ's appearing. Now, here's where we come back to this text. You might say, how do you know this? We look at these texts. They, they almost sound like something, some um, surreal sort of myth that you're reading, a story, but it's not. This is, this is prophecy. This is what, is, this is what is the future is holding. Well, how do we know that this is going to happen this way? How can you be so certain? How can you speak of such things with such confidence and boldness? For one thing, it's simple. God's Word says it. But there's another way of looking at this that Paul refers to here. Look at the one who will bring about the sovereignty of Christ's appearing. Look at him. Look at him, his description here. Can he be stopped? Can he fall short? Let the glory and sovereignty 
Let His glory and sovereignty over all things spur you on with confidence and joy to keep the commandment until the appearing of Christ. You can't lose if you're in Christ. Like it says in Romans 8, if God is for you, who is against you? Look at this one. This, this, this one is sovereign over all. Notice the text. First, who is going to display the appearing of Christ? I think, I think this He is referring to God the Father who will display His own Son. I, I think that's what the rest of Scripture alludes to that that the Father will bring about the coming of Christ and display His Son with power and glory and accomplish all His will. He's the Father. Even if you say it's the Son here, that's fine too. Both God, the Father, the God of heaven and earth, God the Father is going to command the final return of Christ and unveil His majestic glory and send the final help and rescue that His people have longed for. He will display the Son's appearing. When will that happen? Look at what it says. At the proper time. He will display the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ at the proper time. At just the right moment. The Father has decreed the entire timeline of redemption and has enacted out every detail since the beginning. At the fullness of time, He sent forth the Son, right? To be born under the, of the woman, born under the law for, for salvation. And at the proper time, He will reveal the Son in the second coming, just as He is. The appearing of Christ is right on schedule. He will not come a moment too late or a moment too soon. The Father will display Him at the perfect time. But who is this God who can accomplish such things as the Scripture promises and not be stopped or slowed or slighted in His plans? And this must become our focus as we anticipate the appearing of Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on whom He is, whom is being displayed on and who is displaying Him. Look at what the description is here. He will display the Lord Jesus Christ at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Who is this He? The Father displaying just at the right time the Son. He is the blessed and only sovereign. Think of these titles. He is the blessed sovereign. What does that mean? This word blessed here, you look it up in a lexicon, you will find happiness. Do you think of God as happy? Or rather, morose. There's a Puritan word for you, right? Who is God? Here, God is infinitely happy. He is not sad. He's not nervous about the things going on in the world. He's not depressed. He's not disgruntled. He is the supremely happy ruler of all. Transcendent happiness belongs to Him. He rejoices perfectly and completely in all of His perfections, in all of His works and plans and promises as they come about. No one, nothing in all of time and eternity is capable of stealing His happiness. And it makes sense. He's the sovereign one. Nothing that He does not want to happen will happen. And everything that He has ordained to happen will. And He's happy. This blessedness is His. He is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the only sovereign. What does that mean? He is the most high ruler, the, the, the one and only being who is totally and completely reigning over all things. There is none so high, none so powerful, none other than He who wields such authority. Look at this. The only sovereign. And the text goes on to call Him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That means He possesses more power than the most powerful King of all time in every place. He possesses more control than the most controlling master or Lord 
of all time and every place. He is king far above all kings and Lord far above all lords. Who would you say throughout history is the greatest ruler of all time other than Christ, God himself? Who is the human ruler? Who is he? Who would you say? You could argue historically that Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest ever. The king of Babylon. I mean, history, history plays this out, his, his magnificent role. Did anybody get that right? <laughs> anyway, it, but look, I want you to turn to this text, Daniel 4. This is what that king says. Written here in sacred scriptures. Nebuchadnezzar the king, verse, chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who, gives, who lives forever. This is a key name for God and all, all through the, the, letter, the, the, the book of Daniel. What is He called here? The what? The Most High. That's what Nebuchadnezzar calls Him. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19 brings the Scriptures to a conclusion as we see this Christ with this title. 19.11 Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This, this, is, this is Christ revealed, appearing right here as, as Timothy as Paul describes in this letter, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of his fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No one, not one human or demonic ruler can challenge his authority. He is the sovereign one who will bring about the appearing of his son and all that he decrees to do through that appearing. In fact, by his sovereignty, he will completely dethrone and eliminate every evil ruler by his irresistible sovereignty and he will fill the new heavens and the new earth with his blessed, happy, unspeakably joyful reign. That's what's coming. Is your mind fixed on that? Or is it as far from you as it can be? Dear ones, keep the faith. Walk in godliness. Christ is coming. And this only sovereign, this happy King of kings and Lord of lords will bring about all His will. Notice the second title we have here. Who alone has immortality. He is the, we've said it already, the source and sustainer of all life. He's eternal. He's not subject to the changes of passing time or age or disease or death. It's impossible for God to become sick, grow old, or die, or be killed. Absolutely impossible. He is the only one who literally possesses immortality. John chapter 5, verse 26 says this very powerfully. John 5, starting verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. 
Again, not one human or demonic being can threaten the life of our God. He is the immortal one who will bring about the appearing of His Son. The Son is immortal. Whoever you, whoever you, you interpret He to be, they all in the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity, have these perfections. He is the immortal one who will bring about the appearing of the Son. In fact, He, through the appearing of His Son, will devour the last and greatest enemy, death, by His immortality. And finally, He dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Again, this is why I believe the text is referring to the Father. Unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. God's character and dwelling place all throughout Scripture have been described by the term light. The Scriptures tell us that God covers Himself with light as with a garment. Psalm 104 verse 2. That God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5-7. through That He is, His life is the light of men and that He shines, His light shines in the darkness but is not overcome by the darkness. John 1, 4-5. Light is used in the Scriptures to depict God as He is in His absolute and complete goodness, holiness, righteousness, and truth. And therefore, God as He is, depicted by light, is unapproachable by sinful man. In fact, the text tells us no one has ever seen God the Father as He is in His perfections, which are depicted by light. No one has ever seen God in His glory as perfect goodness and holiness and righteousness and truth. In fact, no one can even know of God unless He is, chooses to reveal Himself. Remember the interchange between Moses and God in Exodus 33, 18-23? Moses said to God, Can I see your glory? And God says, No one can see my glory and live, but I'll show you just this part of my, my being, my, my, my goodness. John 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the text tells us. The only God who is at the Father's side. Who's that? Jesus. He has made Him known. No sinful believer can enter the holy presence of God the Father and molest His character. No deceitful being can invade the truth of God and corrupt His Word. He he exists in unapproachable light. No evil being can reach into the goodness of God and pervert His plans. No unjust being can violate the righteousness of God and destroy his decrees. Darkness cannot enter. Darkness cannot apprehend, cannot even see or look upon the light of God. He is beyond the sight, the reach, the apprehension of all. Unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see. And so think of this. No one created being, not one created being can threaten the holiness and goodness of God the Father. He who is unapproachable, who is unapproachable light will not be thwarted in bringing about the appearing of His Son. But He will indeed devour darkness and all of the works of darkness through the appearing of His Son. So as we think of this, this God, the blessed and only sovereign, the one who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. When He reveals His Son, this will be a final event. This will be a sovereign event. He will bring about all of His purposes. And and here is joy unspeakable to think upon and be motivated by to keep the commandment. I'm going to quote right out of a commentary. This, This commentary was written by George W. Knight. Listen carefully. When the great... And majestic God brings about the appearing of Christ who has already brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, 1 Timothy 1.10. Christ will enable us to fully enjoy eternal life and put on that immortality, 
1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57. That appearing will display the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. And in our transformation, we will become like Him, 1 John 3.2, Philippians 3.20 and 21. Because we will see Him as He is, 1 John 3.2. The wonder and glory of that appearing is that in it, the transcendent God manifests Himself in Christ and by that act makes Himself available to us and bestows on us that which we could never have apart from Christ. Thus we are to put on immortality, a characteristic that is God's alone, and to see Him in Christ and be transformed rather than destroyed by that sight. The wonder and glory of that appearing is that Christ, the transcendent, is that in Christ, the transcendent God comes to rule over us, share His happiness with us, share His immortality with us, welcome us into His unapproachable light through His completed redemptive work and the gift of a glorious eternal body's body like Christ's. Think of that. In Christ, you will take on immortality. You will see the unapproachable God. You will live happily under His reign. And all sin, darkness, and evil will be gone. That is a sovereign return. That is a sovereign unveiling of Christ. So this, this one, this is to be joy unspeakable and grace to you right now, dear ones. And so by the power of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, let's keep this commandment. Let us do so by His grace as we stay mindful of His constant presence, His constant audience, and being aware and anticipating His return. And there's only one fitting way to end this section, right? Look, to Him be honor. Doxology. This is the way Paul ends these sorts of sections, right? He can't help but start singing. I wonder if he was humming as he's writing. I don't know. To Him be honor, reverence, respect, awe, admiration, praise. To Him be eternal dominion, power, authority, rule, sovereignty. You know, as you, as you have a doxology like that, it sounds like you're giving God those things. Is that what we're doing? Like, God, all this is yours. It already belongs to Him. You're simply attributing to Him everything that already belongs to Him. So in our doxology, we praise this God and Father and His Son, and we anticipate His coming. Now, before I pray this morning, let me invite you to think about the gospel are you here this morning and not yet a believer in Christ? Do you know that this, this Son who is appearing is your Savior and your Lord? Think of it this way. I, I just spent lots of time reading the Scriptures to you about this appearing. Which side of the appearing do you want to be on? With Christ or against Him. Because with a Christ like this, there's no neutral ground, is there? You can't just be like, well, it's not that important to me. If you say, well, it's not that important to me, that will immediately put you against Christ. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Love not the world, neither the things in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. And listen, the world is passing away and all of its desires. But the one who does the will of God endures forever. Dear ones, listen, if you live your life fulfilling the desires of what looks good, feels good, and brings you the praise of people, you are living in the world and that will all be perishing when the return of Christ is made. I invite you 
to confess your sin, your worldly heart, and come to Christ and fall before Him as King of kings and Lord of lords and trust in His perfect saving work to make you His child and to put a new heart in you that loves Him before all. And then when He returns, you will see Him, you will be like Him, and you will experience His eternal, happy reign, just like Paul wrote here to Timothy. You see, all you need is Christ to enjoy this eternal life. Not one of your efforts to be good enough will make it, right? We're, we're all flawed. You're like the rest of us. You're sinful, and you can't impress God with what you do. But Christ was perfect. And in his body on the cross, he takes our sin and absorbs it and is punished for it so that we could have eternal life. Trust in him. Come to him. Trust in him alone. And he will give you life that lasts forever. Please stand with me. Let's pray together before we go. Heavenly Father, we... We are sobered and at the same time thrilled at your coming. And yet we also confess that our minds, our hearts are so filled with worldly things and we forget your coming. There are days that come and go that we don't even think Christ is coming. Forgive us. We know as your children that we are forgiven. But we confess this and ask you to by your Spirit, put texts like this into our hearts, into our affections. We want to be mindful of you and your eternal plan. We're so consumed with our own temporary plans. Father, we pray that you would enable us to walk by faith, keep the faith, walk in godliness, like Paul says, train ourselves for godliness and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because this world as we know it is passing away. And when you come, you will reorder everything. And we want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith, the righteousness of God that depends on faith in Jesus Christ, just like Paul said. Father, grant us this faith. And may we walk humbly. If there is someone here who has not yet begun to trust in Christ and turn from sin, please awaken their heart to see the urgency of these matters, these texts. To know that this is, this is no myth. This is no fable. This is the word of the living God. Please grant sight. Everything about this world wants to blind our eyes from these realities, these truths, these transcendent truths about the Father and the Son. But Father, please, you can open our eyes. Please grant salvation. We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.